So yeah, it's been a running gag on this show that I have a uh, difficult time pronouncing Japanese names. And I actually looked into this a year or two ago. It turns out the reason I kind of struggle with like new words or words that I'm not super familiar with is because I have dyslexia. So I just really wanted to say to all you ableist fucking monsters that you are canceled. Jake, you are canceled. Tyler, you are canceled. Micah, wherever you are, you are canceled. Our listeners, hit pause, call up your boss, let them know you've been fired because you are canceled. Or as my people call it, Candle will say. Actually, I cannot be canceled. I, too, am dyslexic, so ah, go shit. fuck yourself, uh, <laughs> you fucking moron, <laughs> for not being able to read these words correctly. Um, <laughs> sincerely, from a fellow dyslexic person. Uh, I thought you were going to go like, I cannot read these Japanese words because I'm from Monroe, North Carolina. <laughs> I mean, that probably has the most to do with it. I, it has to be. Nick, that's no excuse. I grew up in a trailer, and I... I'm, I'm rocking some of these just fine. You got <laughs> Yeah, uh, especially when you came from a town that your fine cuisine was Jolly's Crab House in Monroe, <laughs> North Carolina. That was like fine dining. Uh, it was knife and fork on Independence. Uh, that was our, our big one. Oh, uh, or otherwise known as knife and gun until a bulldozer <laughs> I mean, yeah. ran it over to expand the interstate. <sighs> Konnichiwa, Hello and welcome Tim to Tim Bell Pod. Podcastio yo yakoso. I am Nick Alexander. Nick Alexander. I am joined by American Pig Tyler Wood. Tyler Wood. Konnichiwa, Nick. Uh, everyone, please give a big thumbs up and round of applause to our very own play-by-play man, the Sex Galiber of Tim Bell Pod, <laughs> Nick Alexander. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, I am also joined Boyo by Scalma. Boy Scout Man. Jake Manning. Jake Manning. <laughs> konnichiwa, konnichiwa. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Nick, for hopefully saying that correctly and not I, I offending every. I, <laughs> I just recently released a wonderful T-shirt design by a wonderful Japanese designer, and I, Haru, if you have listened to this episode, I apologize in advance for Nick Alexander for butchering your beautiful language. I tried. I, I did Duolingo and everything. You did. You tried. You tried. tried. You I did. Tried. You you tried your absolute best to fight your genetics, and <laughs> here we are. Here we are. Baca, okay. Nick, Baca. <laughs> so today we are talking about one of the all-time greatest wrestlers to ever do it. A guy with Damian Lillard level loyalty. A man with twenty-five five-star matches he was one of the four pillars of heaven and a legend who quite literally gave his life to pro wrestling mitsuharu misawa i'm i'm already applaud you just for making a damian lillard reference in the middle <laughs> of that intro you and i are the only ones that got this on this podcast uh good luck to any of our fans who got that but yes extremely loyal in prep for this podcast 
I had to take like a few minutes and step away looking at the outline and I had to like take a second and I go, wait a minute, Masawa is probably outside of Anoki and Baba for obvious reasons. If you, you put them aside, Masawa is probably the most important after them. And you can almost even make a debate as far as like in ring wise. Believe it or not, like we all love Muda, but there are critiques of Muda as as just being a gimmick, even though when you would take the face paint off, he was an incredible wrestler. But the level at which Masawa was wrestling at was was so next level as well, too. I think you could make a pretty good argument that maybe Masawa was a, was a better wrestler than, than Muda. Some people would go with you, some people wouldn't. But as far as importance to... Japanese wrestling, I, I, I don't think Muda has the same impact as Misawa does. And I can't think of anybody else other than, as I said, Anoki and Baba. So it's got to put him top three, top four in Japanese wrestling all time. I mean, do we put Ricky Dozan in there as well? I don't know. I, does Misawa make a better case than him? Possibly. So yeah, I, I think as far as in ring, un, unquestioned. But also to importance, I mean, uh, unapproachable. And this is someone who never once won the spinner belt. He never even worked for AEW Developmental Territory WWE. So Tyler, you ever heard of this guy? Have I heard of Mitsuhara Misawa? Absolutely (laughs) I have. uh, Because I started watching independent professional wrestling around the time that a lot of the guys that are running professional wrestling as a whole now were on the independence and we're going to get into it later but like guys like Samoa Joe wrestled him directly and other guys like Brian Danielson and I think Chris Hero were making excursions over to Noah and that's where I first started hearing about it Uh, I started watching indie wrestling in like 2009 that was only like three years removed from Brian Danielson doing long tours over there and the heavy influence of Masawa definitely Definitely made me a very well-rounded teenage wrestling fan with a lot of friends. And I know we have so fucking much to get to, but I kind of wanted to bring this up. Do you think that these Japanese legends, do you think there is a level of disrespect towards them from American fans? Because if you talk to your typical WWE, WCW grown fan, you ask them to name the 510 best ring workers of all time. You're getting some combination of Eddie, Sean, Rick, Brett, Owen, AJ, Omega, Danielson. He who shall not be named. If you're nasty, uh, <laughs> Kurt Angle. So unless you're talking to that sort of niche wrestling fan who's all about some work rate or, you know, they were like born in Japan, I guess. You don't hear a Masawa, a Kawada, a Kobashi, unlike say someone's Rushmore of wrestling. When they were doing things in the 80s and early 90s that we think of today of like pushing the art form forward. Well, also, too, it's it's, it's probably because like those guys that you just listed, Eddie and the rest of those guys, they went to Japan. They went to Mexico where Misawa was primarily in Japan all the time. So the idea of like if Misawa came over for five years, three years in his prime to WCW, would it, would it have worked? Would his, you know, would we be just be blown away by his wrestling style and would they be allowed to do it? And would he have people that could keep up with it where we, we clearly saw 
Eddie and the rest of them go from different places and adapt and change and work within the confines in which they were given. So, I mean, I mean, that's the valid argument against that. But at the same time, too, like, Masao was such a big star in Japan. He wasn't, he didn't have to adapt <laughs> because he was yeah. that big of a star there. And why would you leave that? It's like the old thing of Ole Anderson. They used to knock Ole for staying in Georgia and the Crockett territory. I'm like, ah, oh, well, you never really tour the rest of the territories. And he's like, why would I? I was making a shitload of money in Georgia. Like, I'll continue to do that. So I think, I think there's a little bit of that. But at the same time, too, when you talk about fluidity in the ring as, as a wrestler, I think Bret Hart is at the top of that list. And Misawa is of that same level. It's interesting to think about it because I don't think it's from a place of disrespect that they don't include them. So much professional wrestling and what people get out of it themselves is based on their own personal experiences. And sometimes the reason that people are drawn to people for things outside of like, you know, work rate or things like that is for the intangibles and like the the bit of themselves that they see in the wrestlers. As far as like the Mount Rushmore, I think it's like it's a little too hard to simplify everything i do think we have to look at it from different styles too and like different styles different eras and kind of break down a mount rushmore of each because it's it's hard to and it's like this in like real sports that (laughs) it's hard to compare people of different different times different eras and different organizations directly with one another because the the things that you're grading them on are so different all right, so Masawa is a wrestler we could easily spend 10 hours on, and that's just me trying to pronounce the names. Oh, self-roast. <laughs> so, you know, maybe we could revisit Masawa in the future, but today we're going to kind of play the hits, talk about the big moments, the big feuds that made him a wrestling icon, because there's no Masawa shoot. His career's mostly pre-social media, and Japanese wrestlers from this time kept their lives very personal by design. So there's no real, like, big life story to talk about with Masawa. You know, Jake didn't wrestle him. Tyler never got three pictures taken with him on the same day. (laughs) So this is just going to be three wrestling fans talking about wrestling, which is... I've never agreed with anything you said more in your life. (laughs) I I think you nailed it. This is is going to be just three marks talking about wrestling <laughs> just like every other podcast in the world so buckle up folks for the most milk toast blandest wrestling conversation you've ever heard hey guys i think i know how we can fix it what if we assign our own star rankings to each match that we've seen <laughs> mitsuharu misawa was born june 18th 1962 in yabari hokido japan So, apparently, Misawa did not have the smoothest of childhoods. His dad was an alcoholic, and he was abusive, and once stabbed his mother, so very similar to the origin story of New Jack. His parents eventually split up with Misawa's mom taking him out of that bad situation. But throughout Misawa's dramatic childhood, he found an escape through pro wrestling, as a lot of us did. He especially loved AJPW, which was, of course, Japanese for All Japan Pro Wrestling, pronounced acronym. His favorite wrestler was Czechoslovakia's Horst Hoffman. And Masawa loved him so much that he actually styled his green attire after Horst 
Tyler, what are your memories of Horst Hoffman? <laughs> half man, half Hoffman. Uh, ha- half man, half horse. Uh, he was one of the best to ever do it. And, you know, if I could go back in time and ask him one question, uh, I'd be, why the fuck is your name Horse? Horse with a T. Oh, Horse. <laughs> I can't remember who it was, but I remember somebody had a story how they almost got in a fight with Horst Hoffman. Out of some shoot, and they were they were just saying like, "Oh, he was doing that German bullshit," and I fucking wanted to slap the shit out of him or something like that. Like when really he was Czechoslovakian, but he was probably speaking Deutsch, so it probably sounded German. So, but I remember somebody like threatening to beat him up. I can't remember who told that story. I didn't expect myself to pull that name out of nowhere, so I don't remember who who told me that story. Horst Hoffman is a man that does not know how to smile. <laughs> He's Czech. What do you expect? Uh, I'm part Czech. Does it all make sense now? Actually, yeah, it does. Because he's definitely trying to smile in some of these, and he's just got, like, his upper lip raised. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I have the mustache, so you never know that my upper lip is even raised at all. Masawa actually went to the same high school as Toshiaki Kawada, who was a year younger than Masawa, so that's kind of fun. And they beat the shit out of each other every day in grade school. <laughs> Just stiff slaps to the chest. Little did they know they'd be doing that for the next 20, 30 years. So in high school, Misawa amateur wrestled. He actually won the national high school championship in 1980, although I couldn't find the match where he dropped the title. All right. If this is all this is going to be, I'll see you guys later. <laughs> this, is just, this is just Nick masturbating into a microphone right now. <laughs> Masawa, you know, he didn't really love school wrestling. He he mostly just did it to prep for pro wrestling. And I think a lot of us got swerved by this shit. You hear there's a high school wrestling team and you show up and it's just a bunch of dudes jogging in trash bags. And they don't have the basic human decency to use pyro for their entrances. Just the As he had been planning to do so from the age of 12, as soon as Masawa got out of high school, it was right to All Japan Pro Wrestling Training Camp by March of 81. There, he was trained by the Magic Dragon and the Great Kabuki. He also gives a lot of credit to Dick the Bruiser, Baba, Dory Jr., and Lou Thez for helping him along. And that's kind of one of the things that Lou did early in his career. He would go around and teach these different cultures, like, how to wrestle. From what I understand, like, Lou Thez, he went over to Japan, taught Ricky Dozan, and then Ricky Dozan, a part of that knowledge onto Baba and Anoki. And then Thez went down to Mexico and kind of did the same and then went over to Europe and kind of just spread professional wrestling throughout the world. So that way he could hopefully wrestle the national hero and, and draw a big house. That's one of the fascinating things about Luthez. And, um, and I don't think that gets talked about a lot. And maybe I'm hearing it wrong, but I remember that was always the story with Luthez. He would go to a different country, take somebody as a student, teach him how to wrestle, and then they would impart their knowledge upon people. And then those those people would become bigger draws and then Luthez would come back and then have somebody to wrestle and somebody to work with and several opponents and then draw big money in the different countries across the world. Was that the same business plan that Jeff Jarrett and Sanjay Dutt had for Rinka King? Uh, no, it was the same plan for Global Force Wrestling. Though. Ah, I understand. So, I gotcha, I gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. That was, that's, that's what they were going for. Because it's global and it's yes. a force to reckon with. So. Misawa made his professional debut August 21st, 1981, in All Japan, of course, uh, losing to Shiro Koshinaka. 
and most of Masawa's early matches hang out around like 10 minutes or less and for the first two months of his professional combat life he lost them all until October 9th when he was on the good side of a tag match Jake who was your first win against Ooh, I don't know hmm I think it was his name was Steve Austin? <laughs> no, I think it's like Steve Logan. He was like one half of Tough and stuff. And all we did was just go out there and do all of our moves. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> like, like just we did all of our moves. We got we got four and a half stars because we just went out there and did move after move after move <laughs> after move. And then I I did some some cheap roll up with my foot on the rope. And ah, I think I think that's what it was. According so. to CageMatch.net. <laughs> Which is not true. They yeah, pick don't up get way, Jake started on cage. It's not true. It's not true. Late. It is not true. It gets picked up way late in my career. There's like seven years. According to them, I didn't start wrestling until like 2010 because like, oh, those are the only matches that matter. Well, what about fucking George South Fair shows? There was a bell. There was a ring. There might not have been all the padding on the fucking ring, but it was definitely a match. Official was there counting three, which wasn't always the case at George South shows, but... That they were there are multiple ones that happened before whatever cage match said was my first match. Well, March second, oh four, this is one I'm going with. You beat Dick Moore, so congratulations, that was your debut match. Dick Morris. Dick Dick Moore. More more Dick comma Dick. <laughs> I don't even know who that is, so Masawa spent the rest of eighty one and eighty two doing a lot of the same as far as having five to twelve minute matches, doing the trabajo most of the time. He was doing the work? Wait, is that not the job? Is I it work or job. job? Or fuck, I don't know. I barely know English. Um, I, I love <laughs> that you're putting three languages in this, and I'm just like, Nick, are you sure? Are you sure this thing? <laughs> Around late 82, you start seeing Masawa grab a win here or there, and he's doing some work with like some North American visitors, like Chavo Sr., you got Jay Youngblood, uh, Dos Caras from Mexico comes over. So there may be like test and crowd reactions to when he wins. Or at the very least, they trust him to not, like, hurt a visitor when they come over. But by 83, Masawa starts getting a little love from the office. Late March of 83, throughout April, Masawa would be part of All Japan's Luthez Cup. So think of something like the WWE's Cruiserweight Classic, where they're just collecting all the young guys, seeing what they got. He did his uh, first match in the tournament, March 27th, 83, beating Tarzan Gato. As the rounds continued, he'd beat Kawada, Fuki, Yoshiro, Momoda, and he'd end up losing to uh, Shiro, but it was a double elimination tournament, so Masawa would come all the way back, reach the finals April 22nd, 83, in a match that Luthez refed. So that's kind of cool. You know, a Japanese wrestling, they are just really good at figuring out how to develop somebody as like a young up-and-comer. And not have to just like, all right, this is new up and comer. We got to put him on a win streak and give him the belt. Japanese wrestling has this unbelievable way of creating a realistic underdog that you can get behind and then get him all the way to the, like, the very edge of something. And then they lose, but then you care for them even more. It's really remarkable what they do with a lot of the, like, the young lions and, and other people. Like that, you saw what they did with Mudo, where it's like, he's mostly just get shit beat out of him, and then a famous guy puts his arm around him, like, I'll be your tag partner. I, Tony Inoki, will team with you, Kenji Moto, and we will go out there and 
and take on the top tag team and you'll you'll look great and you'll look fantastic and because I've put my arm around you, you're now a star. And then he ends up catching the fall and Anoki's like, Ah, you got much to learn, young you know, young blood and you get behind him more for that. And these ideas of a double elimination and then coming all the way back. Like Japanese wrestling is very good at creating these just unbelievable underdog stories and getting you to care about professional wrestlers and doing it with professional wrestling as opposed to smoke and mirrors and promos and this guy's mother died and he lived on the streets for eight years. Like, no, like how can we get somebody to go against all the odds, but then come all the way back and create this wonderful underdog? You don't see that a lot in America. And maybe, maybe it's because in Japanese wrestling, they view it as such a sport. You know, they're like, well, how can we tell the most compelling story using sport as opposed to some of the more theatrics that we may use here in the States. And that goes back into kind of what I was saying earlier, where it's like professional wrestling's, depending on who you ask, all that tied into one, especially here in America. Like the, the character tied in with the, with the wrestling ability. I think that's why guys like Jushin Liger get over here so well, because it's like, that's an iconic look, and Muda's the same way. And you have Masawa here, who is a fantastic wrestler, but really once he got out of the tiger mask mask and nick and i were talking about this a little bit the charisma that a lot of these japanese professional wrestlers show off i don't think translate all the time to what we're used to seeing as american wrestling audiences in the finals misawa once again lost to shiro and the winner of the tournament was going to get sent off to you know learn and work in a foreign country but misawa balled so hard all japan owner big baba decided to send both guys so he's officially on the radar that June. There's about a month missing from both Shiro and Masawa's matches. So I don't know if they did something then, but it was March of 84 that the plans for Masawa start unfolding. And was that Shiro- a reference to Biggie Smalls? You know, there was a local comic. Jake, do you remember Big, uh, Big Baby? Big Baby, yes. <laughs> Big yes, Baby! Yes. <laughs> So I've just always said Big Baba in his in his cadence. <laughs> ah, I gotcha. I was thinking, uh, you know, uh, I love it when you call me Big Baba. That's what I was uh, thinking. Yeah, should have got there. All right. Yeah, it's, it's okay. You can still keep doing it, and people can think what they want. Only only open my comics in Charlotte will know what you're really getting at. But then the other ninety nine point seven percent will be like. Nah, he's making reference to Big Papa. (laughs) Before we get too far out of this, Jake, you touched on it a little bit, but would you be a fan if American wrestling adopted a little bit more of the young lion coming up through the ranks, paying your dues or else form of training? Would you like that if that came to the U.S.? Uh, a little bit because it's a little bit of a thing, but we're Americans. We'll go against the grain every chance we get. That'll never happen here. It's more about being loud and obnoxious and who can make the most noise. And if somebody goes to a wrestling school and he's a he's a dick, he's obnoxious, he's cocky, he hurts people, is only concerned with doing his cool moves and not catching everybody else for their moves, and make sure he puts video clips of him doing cool moves only. Talks about great he is on, on Twitter, and then a wrestling trainer comes out and goes, this guy's awful and horrible, and this is what I mean. Then that'll put eyeballs on him. That'll make him more famous, and then all of a sudden he'll be a wrestling on Dark and get a WWE tryout. Oh, you're giving me enough information to do some digging. Uh, <laughs> go ahead and dig. There's like 20 guys that are like that. So that's I've described 
It's so plainly that there are multiple guys that are like that. March of 84, Misawa and Shiro would finally get that all-expenses-paid vacation to sunny Mexico, competing in EMLL, soaking in that sweet lucha style. It was while conquering Guadalajara that Masawa got a call from Giant Baba asking him if he could jump from the corner yet. And he was like, yeah, if I jump from the corner, gravity will kind of do the rest. And Baba's like, great, hear me out. You know how Tiger Mask basically revolutionized pro wrestling in like, I don't know, two years. We'll have matches that are talked about 40 years from now. I need you to do that. So Masawa would return early from Mexico back to Japan as Tiger Mask, part tiger, part mask. For those that don't know, Tiger Mask was a manga character from the 1960s that New Japan licensed for a gimmick in the early 80s played by Satoru Sayama. And Sayama had those iconic matches with Dynamite, amongst others, because every time he stepped in the ring, it was fucking incredible. However, Sayama would leave wrestling altogether over people always asking who is Tiger Mask instead of how is Tiger Mask. And that led to All Japan buying the rights and giving the gimmick to Misawa, who was more or less like, man, I don't want to do this fucking bullshit. It's definitely a departure of styles, but Sayama was just, he was one of a kind, generational, unbelievable in, in every aspect, like... I don't even know like what you could compare it to in any other sport. I always think Barry Sanders because he was so good for such a short period of time yeah. and then dipped. Yes, uh, probably the best way to put it. It's probably like taking Jamal Charles and telling him he has to run like Barry Sanders. Jamal Charles, Pro Bowl player for the Kansas City Chiefs, but he is not Barry Sanders. Yeah. <laughs> and it, or Jamal Lewis, completely different runner altogether. Very grounded pound guy. Led the Ravens all the way to the Super Bowl. But definitely was not Barry Sanders. That's, that's the only way to really equate it. But um, that's one of the things that Masawa had to do was take this character and kind of like, you can tell early he's trying to fit this square peg of Masawa into the Sayama round hole and it's not working, but it's not until much later where he realizes who he is in the midst of trying to be something else that it, it actually, he makes himself better because he finds himself. And uh, you did mention that Tiger Mask was a manga property. They recently, uh, I think it was like five, six years ago, had Tiger Mask W anime come out. Uh, they had another version of, of Tiger Mask called Tiger Mask W Wrestling in New Japan for a bit, and that was uh, Kota Ibushi, little fun fact. That's cool. That crossover, brother. Gotta have it. August 26, 84, Misawa would win his first match as the Catman against La Fiera, who apparently helped him a lot over in Mexico as far as training and all that, but uh, from there, he was off and running as Tiger Mask 2. Tiger Mask would go on a crazy winning streak, so kind of polar opposite from his uh previous all japan experience he almost always won if it were a tv match he tag with and face davy and dynamite which is kind of cool but we are getting close to the time where the bulldogs were off to wwf and vince would like cut off their trips to all japan tiger also shared the ring with harley race nick bockwinkle so he left for mexico as a young boy and now he's working with global superstars well, and also, too, with, with Tiger Mask, it, it sounds very much like Giant Baba. Can you jump off the top rope? 
And like, he's like, yeah. And Baba's like, good enough. I can make money off that. <laughs> like, just because Baba's a legend doesn't mean he's not a wrestling promoter at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, like the original Tiger Mask, I mean, wrestling someone like Harley Race, that would be a weird conflict of styles that may not even produce a good match. But thinking about the style of Misawa against Harley Race, like that's actually something that's probably a bit more palatable and, and enjoyable. And it gets you closer to the destination of having a great match. And this is just more of an example of like, could original Tiger Mask have a great match with Harley Race? Because Harley's going to ask him, what do you do, kid? <laughs> and then Sayama will explain some ornate cartwheel thing. And Harley's like, good, I'll move. You know, like, <laughs> or like, you know, Masao will come in there, throw some forearms and trade some blows with Harley. And it might be a bit more accommodating to Harley's style and be a bit more back and forth and be a bit more interesting. So a lot of this 80s and 90s stuff is going to be very similar to the 80s and 90s stuff in WWF that we've brought up before. You pop onto TV to build the feud, get your heat, get over, whatever. Then you show on the road to the house show loop. 85, Misawa's doing a ton of tagging. He's switching out teammates, tagging up with Kawada, Magic Dragon, Fuki. And then he'd start a feud with a Gunaki Kobayashi. I think Kobayashi, he also feuded with the original Tiger Mask, if I'm not mistaken, like okay. towards the end of that run. So it was clearly all Japan trying to do everything they can to be like, oh, this is the same Tiger Mask, same <laughs> Tiger Mask. Yeah, it's a real Tiger Mask. Look, Don, my kid's over here. Davy boy, ha ha, real same Tiger Mask. Like it always felt like that in the beginning in the way that it was booked. And I think Kobayashi was, was meant to do that as well. But obviously, clearly you see there is a difference in the matches. Should have gotten Rick Bogner. <laughs> he would have crushed it. June 21st, 85, Masawa and Kobayashi would have one of Masawa's many, 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 many Wrestling Observer matches of the year when the two fought over the NWA International Junior Heavyweight title. Meltzer reported that Masawa had actually blew out his knee before the match and still delivered a great performance and called it the best of the Tiger Mask era. Dave's such a mark. Masawa would need surgery after the match, and we'll see this time and time again throughout Masawa's career. Some of it could maybe be genetics. A lot of it could just be the brutal way wrestling hits your body after 3,000 matches. But a lot of it seemed to have stemmed from his time as Tiger Mask, having to do all the on-brand Tiger Mask things. It just wrecked his knees. And it's funny how he'd be like kind of the second... All Japan Junior to have start having knee problems, like because uh, Onita, the junior division was kind of centered around him. He starts having knee problems. He has to change his style, and then he goes off into more of a hardcore style. Where Masawa, once again, All Japan's junior division hopes are all wrapped around him, and then he starts having knee issues, and he starts to get more of a ground and pound suplexes, hard hitting style. But then you have New Japan cruiserweights and light heavyweights, and they're just flipping all over the place, not hurting each other. It's the weirdest thing ever. I always felt like the All Japan lightweight division or junior division was always cursed. Anytime they got anybody with momentum, they started having knee issues. But for whatever reason, New Japan could maintain it over the years. I'm kind of pulling this out of thin air. It's, I heard it on like a random-ass interview, so I don't know how to give this credit. Baba was so concerned with his roster looking tough 
that he wouldn't let them wear knee pads. I'd imagine that had something to do with it, because if you're landing on your knee, you're landing on your fucking knee. It's funny that we're talking about kind of the clashing of styles of the uh, original Tiger Mask versus how Masawa does it. Uh, there's a match on YouTube that I watched. It's him versus Chavo Classic from 85. And there are times where Masawa doesn't seem nearly as fluid. It's a very short match, but he just doesn't seem nearly as fluid as he does, especially in his later years, even though he's in his prime. And I think some of that can be attributed to him trying to fit the Tiger Mask mold a little bit. He's also, like, there are times where he's working extremely light, and I don't know if it's because he's working against someone who isn't also Japanese or maybe isn't in the promotion all the time or what, but, like, there were a couple of elbow shots to the shoulder. I'm like, man, what are you you doing? I've seen you try to kill other people. (laughs) After recovering, Masawa was back under the cat with mutton chops hood by August 31st when he faced Kobayashi again for the title, this time winning with the Tiger Suplex 85. Armed with his first title, Misawa was getting right over, so it was time to start tagging with the big dog, Giant Baba. They'd face Kobayashi and various partners. Uh, they beat Tim Horner and Tor Kamada. Misawa would also tag with Kawada some. And October 28th, 85, Misawa defended his title uh, successfully against Chavo Sr. So, yeah, maybe maybe the Mountain Goats should have wrote a song about fucking Misawa. <laughs> After that, it was back to the tag scene, wrapping up 85, getting all the way into uh, 86. March of 86, Misawa vacated the junior heavyweight title because he was about to get out of that weight class. Again, doing all the flippy shit he had to do as Tiger Mask. It was tearing up his knees. So Baba sent him up to the heavyweight division where he could do more mat wrestling. And at 6'1", 220 to 240, depending on the time, he was a very believable heavyweight. And a less believable Tiger Mask. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of how that works. April 19th, 86, Misawa and Baba went to America. They uh, wrestled in the Crockett Cup in the Louisiana Superdome. They beat Black Bart and Jimmy Garvin before losing to Magnum TA and Ron Garvin. It's just a weird pairing, and it's just like a weird thing when you see like the bracket of the Crockett Cup. Like There's always these just weird tag teams put together. Like You'll see Sheep Herders, Fantastics, George South and Steve Kern. Like, what? Because <laughs> <laughs> they're just trying to... F- had the stats and put as many tag teams in it so that way when Dusty wins it with Nikita Koloff it looks cooler I mean at the end of the day so they're just trying to do but no being a part of the Crockett Cup was kind of like probably a thank you to Baba like thank you for taking some of our guys over there and put money in our pockets and also it gives it an international thing like hey we have a team all the way from Japan coming over here and then of course like in Louisiana people are just chanting USA USA at them the whole time <laughs> yeah uh, being a part of the Crocker Cup was was definitely a way to get more exposure. Probably was a good payday. Very beneficial to everybody. The next day on uh, 420, brah, Masawa headed to Minnesota to be part of AWA's Wrestle Rock 86, where he defeated the multi-time convicted pedophile, Buck Zumoff. So. Ah, that's where I know the name from. I knew I knew him from somewhere. Did Cliff Compton <laughs> shit on him on his Art of Wrestling episodes? Is that where I know it from? Or is it just the pedophile oh. stuff? Oh, I, I just know that he's a piece of shit. I don't know about... I'd heard the name Buck <laughs> Zumhoff before, and I, I'd never seen a match of his, and I'm like, all right, 
well. Oh well. <laughs> let, let, let's let's narrow it down. Does Tyler hate him because of all the pedophile stuff, or because Cliff Compton had a bad interaction with him one point in time? Oh, if he had a bad interaction with Cliff Compton, we should damn this man forever. He should be blackballed. Nobody talks bad about Cliff Compton. This pedophile stuff we can probably forgive, but just saying. If he had a bad interaction with Cliff Compton, heaven forbid, blackball this man from professional wrestling forever. I, that was a shot in the dark. I don't even know if it was a bad interaction or if he talked about him on his trip over, like the tour he did in Africa. Buck Sumhoff was not going over to Africa with him. <laughs> okay. Like, that you. is 1,000% not a thing. This show is in its entirety on YouTube. This match is in part number one. The video is titled AWA Russell Rock 86 Wrestling PT1, PT1, all one word, 46 minutes in, and not a person in this arena gave a fuck that Tiger Mask 2 was in the ring, and I'm not even going to, it's not Masawa's fault. (laughs) He finally pulled out a tope, and that, like, got some applause. Also, the layout of this arena, it's huge. It's 50 to 60,000 people, and this is 45 minutes into the show starting. There are many empty seats, so, like... I think I kind of equated to a comedy show a little bit that, you know, with wrestling, there's a give and take with the audience. And when you have something like this, it's a giant arena, not everything's filled out. And like, they don't have the production quality of a WrestleMania or anything that Jim Crockett Promotions is doing at the time. And it shows it, it, it's an awkward thing to watch. Back in Japan, it was more tag team wrestling for Tiger Mask. Still pairing up with Baba. Uh, he mixed in Jumbo Saruta here and there, and that's two pretty good tag partners to be rubbing elbows with. Baba and Tiger Mask wrapped up 86 in the Real World Tag Tournament. I don't think it's called that at this point, but that's what I'm going to fucking call it. They took on Ted DiBiase and Stan Hansen, Rick Martel and Tom Zink, and the Funk Brothers. So that's, that's fun. Masawa breaks off for singles matches here and there, but... There's a couple years now where it's like mostly tag team wrestling. Jake, do you know why they did this so much in all Japan? Because it's not like the Road Warriors versus the Heart Foundation, like official tag teams. It seems like so random. Just pairings of people like we need you in tags now or we need you in singles now. I I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense to them. It probably did. I mean, because you would you would get like, gosh, who did Tenor used to team with? I think Tenaru and Choshu would team up. Like it, they, we had two bigger stars, and then put them together, and like, ah, oh, well, they're a big tag team now. Let's get Bruiser Brody, Stan Hansen together. Big tag team now, because they were doing that a lot with Americans when they would come over. They would come over, and then the Americans have a single match, then they put them in a tag match, which would make it bigger, and then make it maybe a six man tag or something along those lines. So they were doing a lot, a lot of that with like Americans that they probably did with their own talent as well. There's just something about Japanese professional wrestling. You see it now, too. There's just something about, like, they really believe in large tag team matches, too. Like, you'll see eight-mans to open up the Tokyo Dome shows every year. And it's, like, some of that just, like, paying homage to older wrestlers and things like that. Because I'll see, like, a lot of those guys just getting, guys from the 80s and 90s getting spots on those early tag matches. Yeah, I mean, it puts puts these guys on the show because they're basically an entrance now, but put them in eight, man. Let all the kids do all the work. Mm -hmm. And that's why Baba was teaming with uh, Tiger Mask. And that's why I almost teamed with Italian Stallion one time, if you've been listening to our (laughs) Patreon episodes. 
A singles match that Tiger Mask did have was March 9th, 87, when he took on Ric Flair. There is a clip of it on YouTube, four minutes. These two are going. They are going hard. Flair's in his prime. Masawa's in his prime. It's completely in Japanese, but it's a fun little highlight video on YouTube. You can check that out, and they are, they're going hard. They're put on a good show. It was a lot more tagging through 87, facing people like murder accomplice Carlos Colon, uh, Tommy Rich, and Pete Roberts. Uh, Pete. July 3rd, 87, Masawa and Saruta beat Ted DiBiase and Stan Hansen for the PWF World Tag Team titles. They just held them eight days before dropping them right back off to them. But anytime you get a W over Stan in Japan, it's a big deal. But then Masawa beat Ted heads up July 19th. And I think Ted's just starting to get the Million Dollar Man gimmick. I think it started that June. So he's not like the world famous supervillain quite yet, but it's, he's still a very accomplished wrestler overseas. You know, WWF TV, Mid-South TV. So these are two pretty big wins for Masawa. And that Masawa Saruta versus Hanson and DiBiase match also on YouTube in its entirety. <laughs> Uh, that is something you're going to hear me say a lot in this episode because Japanese professional wrestling companies don't give a shit about copyright. So that it is <laughs> plastered. You can catch all of Masawa's career. But yeah, that first one, good Lord Stan Hansen and Ted DiBiase are fucking terrifying looking. Those are some scary, <laughs> thick fucking men. Yeah, and it's funny that after Ted's run, he went back to the teaming with, with, with Stan. And if he didn't hurt his neck, they could have teamed for several years in Japan. So. They could have caused all type of havoc after the Ted DiBiase, like, million-dollar man years. For the 87 Real World Tag League, Tiger Mask teamed up with Shinichi Nakano for some pretty meh results, but they did face some more cool names. You got uh, Abdullah the Butcher with TNT, a.k.a. Savio Vega, John Tenta with The Great Kabuki, and... Bruiser Brody with Jimmy Changed My Story Five Times About How My Girlfriend Died, Snooka. January 2nd, 88, Misawa faced AWA champion Kurt Hennig for a title shot, and Misawa wins by countout, which by America rules means you don't get the belt, but by Japanese rules, it means you do. So that was like a whole thing uh, about this match, whether Misawa should be AWA champ or not. Hey, Nick, guess what? It is on YouTube. <laughs> uh, and I thank you so much for clearing that part up for me because I did watch it, and then I was like, oh, it's a count at victory. Who gives a shit? And now you're giving that e- the, the extra context to it. And I'm like, oh, okay, that, that makes me way more sense as to why they were as pissed as they were. May 27th, 88, Tiger and Nakano took a loss to the Rock and Roll Express, who are who, Tiler? They are Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson. <laughs> Good job. See? Good job. Progress. Did you see yeah, okay. me squint because I was having like a, a <laughs> flashback to all the times Jake yelled at me? It worked, though. It yeah. worked. <laughs> it's, it's Ricky Morton and Ricky Morton. Uh, you know. <laughs> Ricky and Kerry Morton. Fuck. Fuck. <laughs> July 19th, 88, Tiger and Akira Tao beat Mitch Snow and guess who, Jake? Leo Burke. Hell yeah, Leo Burke. And Mitch Snow, uh, another good wrestler. Like, he did some shit outside of the ring that kind of got him in trouble. So I don't want to, like, talk him up too highly, but he was a very good wrestler, a very good hand. He would pop up every once in a while on AWA, like on ESPN. And he had this, like, follow-through hip toss that looked really cool. So Mitch Mitch Snow, just kind of forgotten about it. I, I believe he's a North Carolina guy, too. He trained with oh, Nelson nice. Royal and everything. 
But once again, don't know if he's an alleged murderer as well, too. So I don't want to. <laughs> I mean, the you know, I don't know. Speaking of, uh, for the 88 tag series, Misawa tagged with Jimmy Snuka as Snuka's partner from the previous year was Bruiser Brody, who had been murdered in Puerto Rico. And I'd imagine Jimmy was like, wow, crazy how they just like murdered someone and got away with it. That's fucking crazy. We should like look into that in Puerto Rico and <laughs> it's definitely not focus on me. Jimmy Snuka, no murders. That's done through an interpreter, right? Because Vince told the cops he didn't speak English. <laughs> exactly. You should do that one on Drunk History. <laughs> oh, that would be fun. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a good one. We got we got to go back and do the other two, and then we're going to do that one for a third. Oh, boy. I we, can't wait for that. That was... We almost did that for real with Micah, remember? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was the Jimmy Snooker episode. Was the yeah. drunk, <laughs> was Micah's Drunk History, yeah, that we had to start the episode over. We were just like, fuck him! Defy <laughs> <laughs> the murderer! But it was part of this 88 real world that Masawa had his first match against Kenta Kobashi, where he and Superfly beat Kenta and Ishikawa. So that's, you know, a little, little, little like nugget for the future. March 8th, 89, Masawa received an NWA title shot against Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, which he lost. But worse, Masawa ruptured his ACL during the match, putting him out for the rest of 1989. This one also on YouTube fantastic sequences left and right great great match crowds on fire good good watch Masawa after recovering would be back January 2nd 1990 taking part in a battle royal I assume to like shake the cobwebs off Davian Dynamite's in it uh, you know it's after that bulldog run in WWF uh, Baba's in it Tenru, Jumbo Russia Kimura so it's like a pretty fancy little uh, little rumble match won by Yoshiaki Yatsu on February 10th, Masawa wrestled inside of the Tokyo Dome for the first time, but for a New Japan, All Japan Supercard. So the story is New Japan kind of got dicked over by WCW. They sort of left them hanging. So Baba decided to help them out as long as none of the All Japan guys were beaten or made to look weak. And as part of that, Masawa and Tenaru got a countout win against George Takano and Riki Choshu. April 9th, 1990, Misawa and Kobashi took the All-Asia tag titles off Can-Am Express. And then four days after that, Misawa wrestled Bret Hart to a 20-minute time limit draw as part of the WWF New Japan All Japan Super Show where WWF actually showed up. You wonder why Vince owns the Buff Bagwell catalog and not Ted Turner. And those shows are crazy because there's like matches with Macho Man and Tenaru and... <laughs> To have like Japanese wrestler, Japanese wrestler, and then earthquake wrestling somebody, and then <laughs> demolition, and then also that SWS promotions kind of like about ready to come up. So there, there's all this business happening with WWF in in Japan, and it's wild some of the things that are happening. A uh, few weeks later, into 1990, Tenru left all Japan for the uh, Eyeglass Man wrestling company called Super World of Sports. But this was a big deal because Baba's health was starting to go and Tenaru was like his hand-picked guy for his next big main eventer. Yeah, I mean, Tenaru was positioned to be the, the face of the company and then Tenaru went out on his own because this eyeglass company wanted to get into professional wrestling. They're like, hey, there's a lot of money to be made in professional wrestling. Let's go do that. And Tenaru, through his years of connections, had the ability to book WWF guys like had full on main events where it was 
Tanaru and Hulk Hogan versus the Road Warriors, who were still big names, or Demolition, just some of the craziest like matchups ever, and they ran some of the biggest shows because this eyeglass company was was funding it. And from what I understand, it would have continued to be a thing if the economy in Japan didn't crash. And when that when the, the crash happened, it couldn't support three major wrestling promotions. So somebody had to go, and the less established one went. And it just happened to be SWS. And then towards the end of those runs, like you saw Shawn Michaels wrestling singles matches when he's like still a rocker against like George Takano and various other people. And then, of course, from SWS, you had war and then down the line. Come on, SWS, you got to get on it. Get the get the Yakuza involved. Get that money flow going. <laughs> Come on. We need it's good for business. Good for business. No, the, the Yakuza ran the buildings. That, <laughs> yeah, that, that's a distinction. Thus, they worked well with the, the wrestling companies. I love the idea of fast forward to 2023, if that had worked out. You have one major Japanese wrestling promotion that's owned by an eyeglass company, and you have another major Japanese wrestling promotion owned by a fucking uh, video game company. And I love the idea of them feuding. It's just, I want every wrestling promotion to be owned by something a little weird. Uh, except for TNA and Panda Energy, that didn't that didn't work out. <laughs> well, don't worry. I work for a company that's owned by a professional football team. So with Tenaru gone, Baba needed a new main event star. And that's when he called up Tiger Mask and was like, hey, can you jump from the post yet? And Masa was like, yes, Baba, for fuck's sake. This all led to May 14th, 1990, when Masawa's career would take off. During a match with Kawada against Yoshiaki, Yatsu, and Samson Fuki, Misawa got Kawada to unmask him. Misawa took off the mask, he tossed it out of the ring, beat some ass, and Mitsuharu Misawa was reborn. Yeah, and it's like a very pivotal thing where he's just like, like, you know, taking a mask off is like very ceremonial, it's big, you lose it in a match, like, oh, I don't want to lose the mask. He just like rips that motherfucker off, throws yeah. in the crowd, <laughs> and just starts beating everybody's fucking ass. Like, it's so out of the norm of what you see in un- a masking of a wrestler, that it's like, what the fuck is happening? Like, it, it leaves a lot of questions, everything. And that's the desired response, is to give them a lot of questions, and... Masawa proceeded to beat questions into people as soon as he tossed that mask out into the crowd. After they won the match, Misawa challenged Jumbo Saruta to a singles match. And with Tenaru gone, and aside from Baba, who's, you know, not quite being a main eventer at the moment, Jumbo is the man at this time, so Misawa's going straight to the top. Kenta and now Misawa defended their all-Asia tag team titles against Johnny Smith and Davey Boy, and then they vacated them because Misawa was about to be off to greener pastures. On the build to Misawa Saruta, they had a ton of six-man tags, with Misawa having partners like uh, Kawada and Akira Tao facing Jumbo and partners like Fuki, Great Kabuki, and all this is going to eventually end up being Misawa's Super Generation Army versus Saruta's Gen Stable. And it's kind of like an old generation versus new generation type thing, where like, where are the new crop of guys coming up? And they were. They were going to be the the main eventers of this company in the future, and Misawa was leading the charge in front of them all, and 
taking down the well-established Jumbo Saruta. So he was always trying to get to a point of taking down Saruta and the idea of like, he's got to take down Saruta for the rest of these guys to succeed is kind of what we're building to and building to a match with Jumbo Saruta and Mitsuhara Misawa. I have a little bit of a sidebar. Do you have to be a giant man to run a Japanese wrestling promotion? Is that... <laughs> is that Misawa's the... the the standout there. He's not a not a small guy, but you've got Antonio Inoki and uh, Giant Baba, and then you have Jumbo Saruda, and like a lot of these names, are very spot on. Well, Inoki is kind of a you know he's a decent sized man, but he has a giant chin. That's that's yes. you have to have a giant something or be a giant yourself, like Giant Baba. You have the giant chin, so I just Jumbo Saruda has to have a massive dick, and that's what put him <laughs> in the running for all of that. That, that, that puts him at the forefront of Japanese wrestling. That's what Saruta means in Japanese, right? <laughs> You're Jumbo Saruta. Like, he's... Then, on June 8th, Misawa faced Saruta 1v1 in the main event to cap off 1990's Superpower Series tour. And apparently the story behind this is when Baba arrived to the building, he heard fans already outside chanting, Misawa, Misawa. That and Misawa's big merch jump led to Baba giving Misawa the thumbs up and letting him win over Jumbo in a 24-minute match that night. So now Misawa's not just a fan favorite, he's a star. And that's the thing, too. He's capturing a younger audience. Obviously, at this time, all Japan, like, they had an older audience that, you know, they, they watched the Destroyer Dick Byer. They watched... The funks come over and they, you know, that when they were kids and they watched Brody and Snooka and now all those guys are gone and the, those fans have gotten older and they've got interested in other things. And now this new generation needs something for them to get behind and instead of them getting behind the foreigners coming in and some of the big stars like Baba and Jumbo, like the younger generation of wrestling fans of Japan were getting behind Misawa and that's... It was smart business for Baba to recognize, like, hey, this new crop of wrestling fans, I'll have these fans for the next five years if I just put over Misawa. So yeah. just that, that simple thing. And, and if I'm not mistaken, this is one of the five-star matches that Dave Meltzer has listed over the years. It's a five-star match. And this is the example that I always use is that to have a five-star match, it's just not about the moves. Like, you look at the moves in this match, and it's, you know, it's, they're done accurately well, and it's a good match, but it's the story around the match that makes it five stars. You just can't walk in, have a five-star match cold. To get a five-star match, there has to be some sort of stakes, some sort of emotional weight to it, and that's what is all over this match. I'm kind of thinking about it now. I glanced over the match earlier. I've got it playing now. The generational differences between the two... I didn't think about it at all, but you look at the guys that were over in Japan, foreigners and uh, Japanese nationals alike, the difference is not just in like wrestling style, but their gear too. I I've never looked at Masawa over the years and been like, wow, that guy has like such a unique look. His ring gear is so amazing. But when you look at what was going on in the decades preceding that, it was just black trunks, black boots. Yeah. That's it. You're in there. You're going in there to kick ass and that's, that's fucking it. And the fact that he's got these long green tights accented with, with white, and he's got these beautiful silver boots, I'm sure that attributed a little bit to, to him being able to, to stand out. Yeah, definitely. 
Masawa's win over Saruta marked the beginning of this big super generation army versus Saruta gun stable that led to God, I don't know, two hundred matches between the two. It's just they went they went at it, house shows, TV, all of it. On July 27th, 90, Masawa challenged Dan Hansen for the vacant Triple Crown heavyweight title, and this title is the Pacific Wrestling Federation world title, NWA United National title, and NWA International heavyweight title. Masawa lost, but this will not be the last time he's in that title scene. Crowd is fucking hot for this one. They, they are on fire. I do have a technical question for you, Jake, uh, when it comes to moves. I heard a Japanese commentator call a basic like overhead suplex a, a brain buster and like what constitutes it becoming a brain buster is it, like how close to landing on your head it is or because it seems like it's definitely yeah. that's evolved over the years uh, a suplex like a vertical suplex you pick a guy up and you secure him down on his back the idea of a brain buster is you drive downward to have him land more on his head or his upper back so it's instead of it going up and like going from a moving somebody at 180 degrees or more getting them up to 90 and then dropping them straight down i got you if you want to get super physical with it but most guys are like oh just drop him on his head dude like <laughs> this did kind of seem like one where it wasn't like fully up it was just like it landed closer on his head than his back, and I guess the guy was just like, fuck it, brain buster! <laughs> yeah, I just went in doubt in Japanese commentary, brain buster! <laughs> in 91, Misawa debuted a new move, the Tiger Driver 91, when he beat Tao on January 26th. And I like the updating a move with a variation each year. Like, uh, you know, Carlin put out a new special every <laughs> year. Uh, wrestlers should be updating their moves every year. I want to see a Superman punch 22. He scratches balls before he does it or something. Jake, do you have any Man Scout named moves? I mean, like, people always ask that. I'm like, nobody's going to listen to your stupid commentary, Mark. Like, that's <laughs> like, the places that, like, do, that people do listen to, they never ask for my moves. They never care. Oh, okay. But then the places that nobody's watching this shit, I'm like, Fine, end of the nature trail. And they're like, okay. And they never <laughs> ask what move that is. So, like, go ahead and assign that to anything. What's the name of the one where you do the uh, scouts pledge uh, hand uh, gang sign as you're falling off the... Gang sign. <laughs> what do you mean gang sign? <laughs> whatever whatever what it is, man. Sign? I don't know. Uh, you do that as you're, like, doing the... Uh, the just, just trust fall? Yeah, trust fall, yeah. Trust fall. Okay. Don't fuck around. You know what, Jake? You know trust what I'm going to do? I'm going to study cool. your matches. And we'll come up with a list of some names just for your moves. Okay. <laughs> Go do that. Fine. I'll be just as over as I was before you did all that work. So, <laughs> Masawa entered the 1991 Champion Carnival, held for the first time since 82. And he would play second in his block. They do a lot more like tournaments and cool shit over there. But he beat Johnny Ace, Doug Furness, Kabashi, Dynamite Kid, with his only loss coming to the eventual second place winner, Stan Hansen. And I don't think people talk about like a Masawa Stan Hansen feud like officially, but he's gonna run into Stan quite a bit here. Yeah, and and Stan, gosh, like they were so good together. Like I remember like clips of, like there's one match where Stan takes like a roaring elbow and he just collapses. And I've always tried to replicate that 
that sell, and I just I just can't do it. Like Stan was just so perfect. You know, we talk about Stan Hansen beating the shit out of somebody, but when he would like register something as a knockout or an almost knockout, gosh, he was so good at it. So so incredible at it. No nobody ever talks about how good Stan Hansen sold something, but he was incredible at it and made Misawa look like a million bucks at every chance he could. I know the exact spot you're thinking of. I, I feel like part of the Japanese style is that they did the pro wrestling moves, but it felt more like a like a MMA fight. They really go after like some straight up like selling and acting. Yeah, Jake mentioned it earlier. He said that they treat it a lot more like a sport, and it it comes across yeah. at times. And other times, it's a little too like, all right, guys, you can have a little bit of fun. It's okay. <laughs> after that, it was a lot more super generation army tagging with the occasional Saruta Gen match that led to Kawada and Misawa beating Dr. Death and Terry Gordy for the All Japan World Tag Team titles on July 24th. They made a defense against Saruta and Tao September 4th, with Misawa historically forcing Jumbo to tap. Tapping was a, a way bigger deal, I feel, in the... I mean, it's still, I think it's still kind of a big deal today if, if it's TV wrestling, but, like, dudes didn't tap back in the day if, if they were, like, stars themselves. Yeah, they were they were very particular about protecting themselves at all costs and like Roddy Pepper's like, You never saw me submit ever. Don't yeah. you ever do that? It was always like a big deal, like you never saw it. Where now it's like ask a guy what his finish is, like, oh this and you just tap. I'm like, Yeah, sure, yeah, of course I would. Um, no problem. <laughs> never think twice about it. Not much longer after this, Masawa and Kawada vacated the belts because you gave them up every year for the real world tag league. I think unless you were like a hill and you were like, fuck you, I'm not doing it or something, but that's usually what happened. They beat Abdullah with Giant Kamala, Dan Spivey and Stan Hansen, which is just a beastly tag team, Dynamite with Johnny Smith, and their first loss was to Andre the Giant and Giant Baba. And I know... Neither of these guys are in their prime in 91, but if that's what it takes to beat you, you're getting booked pretty good. <laughs> in the finals, Masawa and Kawada face Dr. Death and Terry again, with Dr. Death and Terry winning and getting their belts back this time. On August 22nd, 92, Masawa finally beats Stan to win his first Triple Crown Championship. Massive win in terms of credibility and just further increasing Masawa's like, massive star power at the time. Masawa and Kawada would tear through the 92 Real Tag League and win their second tag team championship, but they did drop the belts in their first defense on January 30th, 93 to Dr. Death and Terry Gordy. And they dropped these belts so quickly because the Masawa-Kawada team was about to split. So this was around the time that Jumbo left after being diagnosed with hepatitis. So Baba split Kawada and Masawa with the friends becoming enemies and uh, Kawada forming the Holy Demon Army with his longtime blood rival, Akira Tao. The story here is that Kawada once had a Masawa shadow so bad that he's willing to join forces with someone he hated to do it. And the Holy Demon Army, such a weird combination, because Tao was like this lumbering dude, like very similar to Giant Baba, mobility-wise, big chops, and then you just had Kawada, who was much more mobile, very similar to Masawa, and still ground and pound, but was much more agile and, and hard hitting and fast paced. And Tao would just come down and slow everything down and kind of be like the heater to, to it all. So it was, it was a very weird dynamic, but somehow they, they made it work. 
the Super Gen and Holy Demon armies would face throughout 93 with Kawada and Misawa breaking off for a Triple Crown match on July 29th, which Misawa won. And so begins the long journey for Kawada to one day finally beat Misawa for the title. Misawa beat Stan Hansen on October 23rd, but during this match, Misawa broke his breastbone. <laughs> And he only missed two weeks. He was back in time for the 93 Real World Tag League. And I think now is a good point to bring up. Masawa is a fucking maniac when it comes to working with injuries. He's like one of the toughest men to ever walk this fucking earth. There was no load management. If he was breathing, he was wrestling. And I believe a lot of this has to do with working under Baba, who like famously only missed something like one match his entire career. These old Japanese fuckers are built completely differently. My God. They are built like a 1970s Oldsmobile. They do not fucking stop. It's terrifying. And you had to. You know, the whole company's riding on your shoulders. Yeah. Uh, Wrestlers in general at this time. Like, if somebody goes down, the whole company could go down. When Jerry Lawler broke his leg playing tackled football, everybody in the territory was pissed. Because, like, fuck, what are we going to do? Lawler was the one drawing these houses. Now my paycheck's fucked. Because Jerry's off playing tackle football and he gets hurt playing with one of the referees. My paycheck's going to reflect less now because we don't have one of our biggest stars in the area. That, that's how guys viewed it. And if you were one of those top guys, you, you took it as a, a point of, I got to make every one of these towns. I've got to, I got to make sure that I'm there so these guys can eat. This is something that we're still talking about today with the fragility isn't the right word, but injury rates with wrestlers because of some pullback on the amount of dates that people work. I've heard that, you know, the bodies can't build up the calluses to the repeated in-ring work, you know, working five, six times a week like they used to. Now they're working one to two times a week. Jake, do you see any credence to that? Oh, absolutely, because what ends up happening is you you wrestle once every three weeks, you go balls the fuck out, you go see Doc, like, hey, my neck and all this is really bad, they work on you a little bit, and then, like, well, you shouldn't wrestle for another four weeks, okay, well, I'll just keep cutting promos and be a TV star, and then, like, oh, you ready to wrestle this week? Nah, Doc says I'm not cleared, and then all of a sudden now it's six weeks, you get back in, you go balls out, you fuck yourself up again. Where if you are forced to fucking wrestle five days a week for your fucking paycheck, maybe you'll learn how to not murder yourself every single match, and you'll learn how to work a little bit. I don't know. Novel idea. I think the thing that may cause me to retire from wrestling is not getting enough dates, because I get concerned when it's been too long in between bookings, and I'm like, ooh, I'm not in good enough shape, and I haven't built up those calluses to deal with that punishment because it does hurt a lot but that's why i like those fantasy cosplay weekends where i get to have four matches in a weekend and i'm like okay i got four matches in a row here i got a match next week and then two weeks from now i feel like i'll be in good ring shape here because i've got some ring time in i'm working my way towards it and then i just kind of get used to the damage so Masawa and Kita Kabashi reached the finals of the 93 Tag League, beating Holy Demon Army for Masawa's second tournament win and his first tag team championship with new partner, Kenta. On June 3rd, 1994, Masawa would beat Kawada once again, but this match received Dave's second ever six-star rating and the last one until 2017. 
this match is cited as one of the greatest pro wrestling matches of all time. And it is very good, but I have a couple critiques. All right. First off, no Russian leg sweeps, no shooting star presses. Lose a star right there. Second, how am I supposed to get into the story of this match when I don't know who it's sponsored by? Was this a Mountain Dew themed match? Was this a Pop Tart themed match? Uh, Nick is being uh, facetious because the wrestling internet doesn't understand humor. So I'm just going to make that as a disclaimer. <laughs> Nicholas was making a joke because he is a comedian. He did not actually mean any of those things. But the reason why this is a six star match is because it's a build over like the story that's being told for several years. It has nothing to do with the moves. And that's, that's what uh, like you always, I think everybody loses sight of. To get the level of that type of a match to get that type of praise, there still has to be a story. There still has to be some sort of thing going on that organically happened and that has been built over several years. I mean, that's, that's just an absolute must to achieve that type of praise. So Masawa finally lost his Triple Crown title to Steve Williams, July 28, 94, after a 705-day reign, a Roman reign, if you will. <laughs> Masawa and Kabashi vacated the world tag team titles again for the, you know, 94 real world tag league. They win the tournament again, win their belts right back uh, when they beat Dr. Death and Ace December 10th. And here's another crazy Masawa story. Uh, He entered the 95 champion carnival despite reportedly suffering a broken orbital bone after Kawada kicked him during the match on April 6th. Masawa, with a broken face, not only did not miss a single show, he proceeded to the finals and won the whole fucking thing against Akira Tao April 15th. With a broken freaking face. (laughs) This guy has been injured since he started, basically. There was like two years where he was clean, blew out his knee, tore his ACL, broke his orbital bone, and he hasn't taken much time off other than the things that like made him immobile. On May 26, Masawa won his second Triple Crown Championship, beating Stan Hansen, and that ended Stan's fourth and final run with the Triple Crown title. Masawa and Kabashi lost their tag titles June 9, 95, to the Holy Demon Army, and this is a big deal because this is the first time Kawada got a pinfall over Masawa, and it was also the first time anyone had pinned Masawa since Dr. Death did it when he lost the Triple Crown almost a year ago. May 24th, 96, Masawa dropped his Triple Crown championship to Akira Tao, who had won that year's uh, champion carnival. The next week, Masawa started tagging up with a new partner, Jun Akiyama, uh, and they won the tag team titles from the Holy Demon Army, who had them at the time. They'd have uh, two successful defenses, the first one on June 8th against Dr. Death and Ace, which won match of the year, and the second one, July 9th, when they beat Holy Demon Army in a rematch before dropping them off to Steve and Ace September 5th. Over to the 1997 Champion Carnival, Masawa uh, reached the finals with two losses to Kabashi and Williams and then a draw against Kawada. He and Kabashi and Kawada had like the same score, so they had a three-way tie. So they had to do like a round-robin playoff to see who would win. So Masawa and... Kabashi wrestled to a time limit draw, but then Kawada beat Masawa in singles competition for the first time ever when he pinned him in six minutes and nine seconds. So a couple tag pins, a stalemate, 
And then an outright win against Masawa, even though I guess you could say it was tainted after like he went the distance with Kabashi, but Kawada finally has a win over Masawa. Yeah, and this is also like the emergence of Kabashi and Kabashi being a thing and everybody recognizing it like, hey, he can't just be the tag partner of Misawa. Like we got to start thinking about him being a main eventer and him going the distance with Misawa kind of establishes him in that point. But we're still trying to build to Kawada being a legitimate guy as well, too, going against Misawa. So like the fact that they're balancing all this at this time that also recognizing, too, like, hey, Kobashi can't be the tag guy for Misawa anymore, and we bring in Jun Akiyama. It's like this really nice balance that's happening. On June 6th, Misawa beat Kawada again for a Triple Crown title match, so it kind of plays in the same thing. The chase is happening. Every time Kawada gains some ground, Misawa knocks him right back down a step. Misawa and Kobashi would have yet another match of the year on October 21st, with Misawa getting the win. Masawa entered the 98 champion carnival and went all the way to the finals. He did this despite various neck injuries, various back injuries, a broken finger, and a broken left kneecap. A broken (laughs) freaking left kneecap. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, despite this, and against all doctor's recommendations to perform surgery and take six weeks off, Masawa continued to work and won the champion carnival for the second and final time when he beat Akiyama. No fucking wonder I've, I've never seen Masawa smile at all. The man was always in pain. It was like, like every time he was in the ring during this era, he just looked mad. And now I know why. <laughs> he was in a massive amount of pain, just standing in a ring. Especially when we get to Noah, he's just like, fuck, like the whole time he's wrestling. He's hurt, uh, he's old, and he works with children. The man's tired. <laughs> then, May 1st, 1998, Kawada finally got him. He beat Misawa as part of the New Year Giant Series Tour for the Triple Crown title, but Misawa went into this match with two blown knees, a bad back, and suffered a legitimate concussion during the match. It knocked him out so bad, he couldn't remember the end of the fucking match. So Baba was like, finally, let's go home. (laughs) He like sent him home and Masawa got a little break. Dude, he got so fucked up. He got diagnosed with a concussion in the late 90s. That's how fucking bad he got (laughs) hurt. That's insane. Like all these matches with Kawada, like they've known each other like since they were kids. So there's a comfortability level. And it's already a snug style as well. Like, if you're wrestling one of your friends, you're obviously going to hit each other harder because there's some comfort there. Because you're like, hey, if I accidentally hit you, I know it's okay. You know it's okay. Where if you're in there with a stranger, you're like, ugh, if I connect a little too hard, you might not know what that's about. But as friends, you're like, yeah, it's going to be okay. And these guys were obviously great friends because they beat the dog shit out of each other (laughs) every chance they got. And Masawa's health took the toll for that. Jake, just real quick, what is your most hardest hitting match? I think a match I had with Cedric Alexander. I hit him harder than I've hit some people in a fight. And same. And I fucking <laughs> screamed at him to hit me harder. Like, I was fucking Terry Funk. Uh, I was fucking screaming at him. I had to put ice on my head because somebody told me like that reduces concussions and head trauma Jeez. because your brain is swelling so much. Like I had to put ice on the top of my head to kind of slow down the swelling of what I just did or else I'd be slurring my words on a stand-up stage at the evening muse on Monday. <laughs> like, 
After a few much-needed months off, Masaba was back in late August, even though his knees were still a problem, and he said he felt only about 60% healthy. But he had to come back because the two tours they did without him were the worst performing in All Japan's history. I think there's something like impressive and I guess like honorable about this level of responsibility and dedication to your company. But this feeling of kind of like that weight and responsibility to fans, peers, the company is ultimately going to be Masawa's doom. It's insane. It's like an 05 to 2010 John Cena, but working a dangerous fucking style. So on top of his wrestling duties, September is when Masawa took over the booker position, apparently after he threatened to leave and create his own promotion, because, you know, he's getting close to 20 years here. He's beat the absolute fuck up. And I think he's trying to, like, slip away to more of, like, a backstage role. Well, and you're looking at Baba and, like, I don't know, he's standing over in the corner counting money. I kind of want to figure <laughs> out how to do that. And clearly you need me because, like, you had the worst drawing tour without me. So he's got the power that way with the crowd and financially like now would be a time to make that move on halloween 98 masawa faced triple crown champion kabashi for the title beating him winning his fourth triple crown championship and this match is rated match of the year by tokyo sports by uh wrestling observer and it's kind of like uh, that part in forrest gump where he's like jaded about meeting the presidents he's like i won the triple crown championship again i won match of the year again something bit just, me in my kneecap <laughs> i don't feel my neck too well <laughs> getting into the last year of the 90s uh 1999 tyler you were alive yes right? i was um, five Jesus. On uh, January 22nd, 99, uh, Masawa lost the Triple Crown to Kawada, but Kawada had to vacate it the next day. So seven minutes into the match, he delivered a spinning back fist to the top of Masawa's head, and he hit him so hard, Kawada broke his forearm and wrist from it. Mm. But this was the last match Baba would ever see. He reportedly called it the best match he'd ever seen in his life. But then nine days later, Giant Baba died of liver failure. Masawa did not know Baba was that sick. Like, only Baba's most innermost circle, mostly his family, including Baba's wife, Matoko Baba, who ends up being a really big part of Masawa's story. You can feel free to call her Little Lady Baba. <laughs> little Lady Baba. I think they used to call her Mrs. Baba, so you wouldn't be too far off by Little Lady Baba. Matoko had handpicked Mitsao Momoda for the next president, but Jumbo, who was a board member on All Japan... He used his swing to get Masawa the position. So there's a little tension already starting a little bit there. So Momoto would be like the interim president while Masawa was trained on the office side of things. But as far as like creative and operations, this is now becoming Masawa's company. Masawa, while being company president, would beat Vader for his fifth Triple Crown May 2nd in the main event of the Giant Baba retirement show in the Tokyo Dome. And they called it that because they wanted it to fill like more like a write-off into the sunset instead of like a sad funeral at a wrestling show. June 11th, Pasawa successfully defended against Kobashi, winning yet another Wrestling Observer Match of the Year. As the president of the company, like <laughs> just, just a thing that happens. Uh, obviously, it happened a lot with Anoki, but Anoki could book himself against some of the best people and obviously he'd have great matches, but Masawa's 
mustering up everything he have just to get in the ring and carrying his weight in the ring, and he's the president of the company, so doing an extraordinary feat in itself. This match also on YouTube, and a uh, great match. I mean, it's I sound like a broken record with this, but uh, one thing that stood out for this, after the match was over, going back to how much the Japanese treat this like a sport, the post-match care for like these two guys that just beat the ever-loving fuck out of each other. It's guys immediately in there with ice with towels, yeah. with everything that they can, because these two guys are obviously hurt. Then Masawa's fifth triple crown reign ended October 30th when he, when he was beat by the man they call Vader. Hey guys, Tyler here. I told you guys I was going to rename Jake's moves, and that's exactly what I did. The comprehensive Jake the Man Scout Manning move list. Move number one, go to sleep outside. Sweet Tent Music, The Badge Stabber, Camper Crossface, The Scout Masterlock, The Camel Bag Clutch, The Fishing Hook, The Butterfly Knot Suplex, Order of the Falcon Arrow, Death Valley Campfire, Last Ride to the Campsite, The Assistant Scout Masterlock, the RK Oath, the Troop Slam, Clothesline, the Figure Schmore Leg Lock, Cooking by the Light of the Moon Salt, the Figure Four Log Lock, the Retired Scout Master Lock, the Pine Buster, Camp Fireman's Carry, the Crossface Eagle Wing, the Diamond Knot Cutter, and finally, the Bear Hug. And then here's where we start getting into some Mrs. Baba drama. Masawa was president in 99. However, Matoku owned 85% of the company and Nippon TV owned the other 15%. So even though Masawa was running the place, he technically, like on paper, has no control. And there was a bit of a power struggle in the back as early as March 99. And Jumbo Saruta kind of confirmed this. And they had like professional tensions way back. Matoku didn't want giant baba to push masawa when Tenaru left like way back in 1990 so i assume he had some feelings kept up about that even before baba died masawa had went to him on behalf of the locker room and asked him to tell his wife to like kind of fuck off and not like leave the company because she was booking some too and sort of their biggest fight was that masawa wanted to like modernize and change up the style the look the feel of the all japan product because sales were dipping but Miss Baba wanted to keep it how her husband had it. So you have like one of these situations where like she does want to honor her husband and that's correct. But Masawa also wants to like put out a new, better, fresh, modernized product. And that's also correct. You know, what do you do? Yeah, especially like the late 90s, all Japan seems very stale. And they're, they're going back to some guys that they were big in the early 90s where it's like, hey, we need to kind of like regroup here and do something fresh and new and at this time new japan is doing that they are they're updating everything anoki's around but he's not so much in the ring and he recognizes that and he's getting a whole crop of newer younger guys and really modernize everything and leaning more into mma and and just kind of make it look a little more like that and doing some really creative things where all japan's still the half and half ring with the All Japan logo and 
kind of just the same old, same old. And, you know, it, it kind of even is like that way today to to an extent. It, it still kind of looks like that. And obviously drawing much smaller crowds. So Masawa was right in, in these concerns right here. So when Masawa goes up to Miss Baba and goes, I'm sorry, Miss Baba. <laughs> I am for real. She should have listened. The final straw, I think, was when Masawa found out that Matoku was taking all the money from the All Japan merch sales for a subsidiary that she had set up. I guess that was like running the merch. So All Japan was making zero dollars from merch. Hey, Nick, you know what I would do in a situation like this? I'd say, fuck you, and I'd start my own promotion. (laughs) Ready to fucking go to war, Masawa went to Nippon TV and told him he was going to start a new promotion, and he said just about everyone in that locker room is going to follow me. (laughs) So... MTV, N, N, <laughs> NTV, official cited with Basawa because what is fucking Miss Baba going to go wrestle? But they wanted to like keep it hush hush for like a year. Uh, they thought, you know, man, Baba just died. Let's pump the brakes, be respectful. And then they were going to drop all Japan from TV, which is, <laughs> you know, is what it is. To add to this, by the end of the fiscal year, March of 31st, 2000, all the wrestlers were working as free agents because Masawa was trying to fight for raises for them. He wanted to give them new contracts. He wanted to give them full medical coverage, full injury pay, stock options, and cut to Vince McMahon literally puking his fucking guts out. He's gonna, he's gonna he's, puke. He's gonna, he's gonna puke. puke. <laughs> and I mean me. I mean me. Oh, deep down inside, I don't like that. And of course, Masawa's like, hey, maybe we should get some medical coverage for these guys. Uh, let me, <laughs> let me, let me pick up a pen to sign that. Oh, wait, I fucking can't because I can't feel my hands right now. Then Miss Baba comes in. She goes, we don't have money for that anyway the merch sales are zero like we don't have anything <laughs> yeah we zeroed all those out it's all the negative inventory that's some fucking paul Heyman level of bookkeeping yeah, there is. that's something <laughs> basically what happened was both parties tried to keep the news quiet masawa was desperately just like pleading with baba for her to give him his like public blessings to just go start a new company just say it's okay so that it doesn't seem so disrespectful Baba had just died. Jumbo Saruta had just died. But Miss Baba refused. So, like, this is like a whole situation. <laughs> On June 16th, Misawa led a press conference where he was accompanied by 23 of the All Japan roster. And he said after he finished his commitments with All Japan, he was out. He's starting a new promotion in August. The next day, Misawa announced the name of the new promotion would be Pro Wrestling Noah. Biblical reference, everybody get the fuck out. I am taking my people with me, and here we are. (laughs) And while people behind the scenes knew all this drama, on the other side, as far as fans and most journalists were concerned, they had seen Misawa wrestle his entire career in all Japan, literally from day one. So it was pretty safe to say that no one Misawa this coming. Jesus Christ. <laughs> that's that's worse than my I'm sorry, Miss Papa. I am for real. <laughs> like, thank you for doing that because it makes my joke earlier seem less worse. That was a giant bad joke. <laughs> but yeah, I remember this being a big deal and going through all the magazines and all the guys that left and went with Masawa, like he wasn't wrong when he said a majority of these guys are coming with me because yeah. they did. They they came in force and like they're all in suits. Like we are Noah now. Like 
They they rolled in force with him. It's sad in a way because, you know, he got his start in All Japan. He owes a lot to the Giant Baba. And it's something that meant a lot to not just him. It was a lot of people. It's a huge thing. And it's, it's, it's sad, but it's also fantastic that one of the greatest wrestlers of all time knew his self-worth. And he's like, you know what? Yeah. Fuck it. I can make... I'm, I'm the draw. I'm going to go prove it. And he did. I think it's like such a cool representation of like kind of like workers rights and shit where like stand up to the fucking ruling class, man. There's more of us than there are them. Hell yeah. Uh, Well, let's talk more about Masawa elite wrestling. Let's go. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Let's do that. All right. So July 20th, 2000 would be Masawa's last all Japan match for several years. Weeks later, he was in Noah. They uh, started out with two events collectively called departure on august uh 5th and 6th so that's that's cool in the first show uh, masawa and tao lost to kabashi and akiyama in a two out of three falls match and let me just say this about noah and we haven't touched on this because it it is a big part of his story but i didn't want to get caught up in it because it's an episode about masawa this isn't about the history of tape trading but as far as like Masawa's popularity in the wrestling world, like outside of the country, like the reason why people like Dave Meltzer found out about Masawa was because of tape trading and getting those all Japan tapes, getting the, those matches against Kawada and Kobashi and those real world tag leagues and those carnival championships, like getting those like to American American fans seeing it was a big part of exposing Masawa to the world. And when Noah came out, like those first couple Noah events, like they were like the hot property in tape trading. Like, oh shit, Masawa's coming out with a new promotion. We got to get that shit. It was like Jay-Z dropping a new album and like all the Americans like, yeah, we got to get the bootleg version of that. You know, like we got to, we got to go scope that, pick that up. We got to get that. And of course, like also DVDs are getting close to being popularized and DVDRs and they're they're getting distributed as well too and that's another thing too that kind of happened early in the years of Noah is I, I don't know if somebody at Noah realized it or this is Masawa thing or where that all landed but they had an interest of getting into the American market and they started creating DVDs with English commentary and also with the, the intent of distributing dvds that played in america because most people don't know that there are regions to dvd players most people don't realize that because people like fucking tyler just going on youtube and telling everybody it's a good fucking match (laughs) so i don't know like the different like during a trape tating era you could get a european dvd and it had to have a region free dvd player to watch something and then you had to hook up av cables into something to then create a dub of it long story but noah created DVDs that would that were region free so that way people across the world could then know more about Noah. So basically Noah was trying to figure out a way to capitalize on this tape trading market and all of these people that had been watching all Japan illegally for years, like how can we make money off them by selling them our product? And obviously if streaming was around, I'm sure that would have been the first edicts of Noah, like let's stream towards America and hit American audiences because they're clamoring for what we got going on over here. So there, there are a lot of interesting things that I don't think we really got to see from Noah, but they, they seem to really have their, their finger on the pulse of what was going on and the popularity of Japanese wrestling, not just in the country of Japan, but worldwide. 
And before we get too far away from it, I just want to, this is out of my own curiosity. I know All Japan didn't really recover from this. And New Japan, for sure, like fast forward to today, New Japan's number one. But Jake, do you have like a good grasp on what the hierarchy of Japanese promotions are right now? Uh, and I think it's fluctuated over the years. I know Dragon Gate got pretty popular, and then there's always these fly-by-night put-together promotions like Anoke Bumbaye, <laughs> like or World Ones presented by Great Muda. <laughs> Hustle got pretty big there for a while. Zero One was big for a while. There were like a lot of promotions that got to like a pretty high stature, and all of them immediately were bigger than All Japan immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like that's how far All Japan had fallen down. That like Zero One could pop up and like already. Second best company or, or third best company behind Noah and New Japan. And now, gosh, it's really tough to. I mean, I think New Japan's obviously top. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Stardom mm-hmm. is one of the t- one of the tops because I think like female wrestling obviously gained ground and acceptance in that country. Where I, I think it's that's been a long tough road f- for for those women. I mean, DDT's getting a lot of respect. Noah even is kind of making kind of a resurgence. I so much out of the world of paying attention to that because I'm focusing on making sure that the wrestling product that I'm a part of right now, my job in that is is going as well as possible. But um, yeah, it seems like there it's New Japan and then a bunch of other really other good promotions. So I wouldn't be surprised if the second best company or second biggest company is is like a stardom or a female wrestling promotion. Oh, and another thing that, that Noah did is that very smartly, they got a good working relationship with Harley Race and brought over some of his, you know, prize students over there. And they recognized that they needed to bring some Americans over because they recognized the popularity of that when All Japan did it. But they were doing that a lot less because it got very expensive in all, like for All Japan in the late 90s. And they were just kind of bringing over kind of retreads and the same people were no one knew they needed some younger, more exciting talent. Jake just mentioned all the cool things about Noah. They had the heat behind them. They had instant credibility with Masawa, a megastar being the head of the company. But there were a series of bad things that would kind of drag Noah down. And a lot of it had to do with injuries. So Kita Kobashi, massive star. He started having really bad knee injuries he would have to have several surgeries that would put him out for long stretches of time. With Kabashi out, Masawa has to take over because he's the man now. So they have the first tournament for the GHC Heavyweight Championship. Masawa wins this, but then he loses it, I think, in hopes of like trying to put over a, like a new person. So uh, after he wins the title, he holds it until July 28th when he gives it to Akiyama. Here's the big problem with Noah. It's a little different from America, American wrestling, where like you can be this big personality and, and be famous or at the top of a company for a really long time because of that. Masawa, Kabashi, Kawada, they were that too, but they were also like the best men for the job because they were that good. So what happened was all the focus got put on a Masawa, on a Kawada, whoever, and they kind of fail to build not not new stars but people who could carry a company they they didn't do a good job building them so when kobashi has to leave with cancer when you know this new guy's title run is falling a little flat when the fucking global economy collapses in what was it 07 to 09 
there's only one person who can who who has a chance to carry Noah, and that's Masawa. And that is going to lead to Masawa wrestling well past him wanting to be there, well past when he physically should not be there, and it creates a much bigger problem that we'll get to. Well, and like when they started that company, they're probably like, okay, well, we need to lead with our established stars. We need to lead with Kobashi. We need to lead with Misawa. Uh, Akiyama's over here, but le- like we need to still build up Akiyama. So like the thought process, like let's go to Kobashi, and then Kobashi gets hurt. And I'm like, well, fuck, we weren't ready for that yet. So you say like, oh, they didn't build any stars, but I don't think they were ready to at that point because they were just trying to go with recognizable stars, and there was probably like a plan to build, but now you don't have stars to build the stars. Yeah. So now you've cre- now there's this large vacuum. And Kabashi's, you know, whenever he's coming back, has having amazing matches, top tier matches, but he's getting hurt and he's disappearing. And so that's frustrating. And we haven't got Akiyama up to like the level we want him at. And then we were throwing all these other guys in there. Our junior division's great, but our heavyweight division's crap. We got Americans coming over. They're great and everything, but they're not established. So we got to establish them. So it's very a hodgepodge thing but there there's some really amazing nuggets in there with like kenta and american dragons over there like you run across a noah card and there's probably one of the best matches you, you've seen in months on there like you put the a noah show in there's probably a match like oh man that's amazing oh man ricky marvin's like i've never seen anybody do that before like you'll run into some amazing matches but it's just like as a whole of a company there's really no identity other than Misawa and I'm sure Misawa's like well fuck we need somebody to step up and do something I was the guy that stepped up and pushed all Japan through I'll step up again for this company because I believe in it and that's kind of all he knew is that when things get bad you step up and you're the man well you can't always do that you gotta lean on people you gotta think of something more creative because this is a physically demanding thing and physically you're going to break down and that's kind of what started to happen. And yeah, that's why you see it like multiple tag matches, multi-man matches with Misawa just so you can get him out there and use him as a star, but you can't have him carry the load every night, but he, he is, and he's trying to the best he possibly can. And I respect Misawa so much for that. Jake, like you said, there were alternatives. There were other choices for it possibly but there are so many times that we see bookers booking themselves at the top of the card to go over not because it's best for business but because they want the ego stroke and they want to be the person on the posters and they want to have the superstardom but Masawa was doing it because when you looked at the paper he was the one that drew the houses and he was the one that had to he felt like put the company on his shoulders and go through and uh, didn't turn out too well. Yeah. So some people are like, oh, well, that's a selfish thing. Where, well, it's like, no, he's, he knows he can do it. He knows he's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And he knows, like, if I blow up my knee, I'll just be in the ring that night, mm-hmm. right? It's almost, it's the opposite of selfishness. It's selflessness. He basically did the thing where that every booker did where they said, oh, I need my workhorse to go out there and I need to rely on you. You're going to get us through this. And he was just pointing at a mirror the whole time talking to himself. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so let's fast forward into the uh, early 2000s. So Basawa wanted to retire in 2007, 
But again, since he was the only consistent top draw Noah had, Masawa decided to put the world title on himself a few times because that meant Noah's survival. During one of those title runs, Masawa would go over to the U.S. again for some Ring of Honor appearances. The first night, he teamed up with Kita Kobayashi to face uh, Morishima and Marafuji, uh, and they wrestled to a draw. The next night, Masawa defended his title against Kobayashi, despite reportedly having the flu. <laughs> so, just another thing Masawa wrestled with. Uh, this is his Jordan flu game. Also, too, it's like it's in front of his crowd. As I said, like yeah. this is definitely one of those moves. Where like, hey, we gotta let people know that Noah's out here, and we're going after the American audience. And right now, the fan base of Ring of Honor are our hardcore faithful. So let's get in front of them. And probably was a good decision for them. Also, Morishima, you know, was looking to really break out and be a big star, but you know, obviously he needed time to grow. So him being in Ring of Honor was a good opportunity and this was a good way to bridge that gap and get him introduced and introduce Noah and this is where he comes from and get that going. So even at his accelerated age, after all the bumps he's taken, after running a a company, after putting an entire workload on top of him, he's still like, you know what, I'll I'll go do an indie show in in America. You know, that just goes to show how much he loves professional wrestling. And I don't think it can be understated just how important the noah influences here on ring of honor like kenta came back definitely i know there's a few shows that he did in 2009 and good god he put on some fucking barn burners one match i think it was maybe the anniversary show he had with davy richards was amazing morishima was there as the ring of honor world champion for a lengthy title reign and just that one touch from masawa definitely changed the course in the history of of ring of honor as well Pushing into 2008, Masawa was so beat up. He had injuries piling up, including osteophytes on his neck, which are bony projections in his joints that cause pain doing just everyday tasks. It also caused a visual impairment in his right eye. September, Nippa TV's affiliate, Yomiri TV, canceled their NOAA broadcast. So we're getting into like the global economic crisis right now. Noah stops taking their entire roster on tours to cut costs. So things are, you know, things are getting real. Then December 17th, Nippon TV announced that they would be cutting Noah's TV completely. And that would mark an end of 55 years of wrestling programming being on that station, going all the way back to the Japan Pro Wrestle Alliance. So Masawa's losing his TV. He ends up picking up like some deals with some satellite dishes, but like that wasn't very popular in Japan. Masawa decides to set up Shiozaki as Noah's new guy. Uh, so he starts tagging with him. Also go Shiozaki. He's, he's also doing like excursions through FIP and doing a whole loop through Florida. Um, I think I was even on like a FIP show a time or two with go Shiozaki. I definitely am. Or maybe I'm just lumping it into the multiple FIP DVDs that I used to pull for <laughs> High Spots grab bags over the years. But um, yeah, they were still going by the old edict of like, hey, this guy's going to be a big star. Send him to America, let him go on a little bit of excursion, and then come over here and be that much bigger of a star. By 2009, Misawa had been working with a similar neck injury to Edge and Stone Cold called spinal stenosis. And it's the injury that ended Steve's career and sent Edge off for, what, six years? This is basically the kind of thing where a doctor tells you, hey, 
one more bump, even perfectly executed, safely landed, could paralyze you or worse. On June 13th, 2009, Masawa would sadly take that bump. June 13th, 09, Masawa teamed with Shiozaki against the tag champion Saito and uh, Smith. Ten minutes before it was supposed to end, Misawa took a belly-to-back suplex from Saito. When he hit the mat, he was absolutely motionless, and he apparently whispered to the ref that he couldn't move, and then he lost consciousness. So on what seemed to be just a normal, clean spot, Misawa had suffered a brutal spinal injury, shattering his C1 and C2 vertebrae. This put his body into cardiac arrest. So the show didn't have a doctor on staff, but luckily there was one in the crowd to even just try to help. He rushes in, he tries CPR, he tries external defibrillator pads, but you know nothing, nothing was working. Realizing the severity of this situation, the locker room runs out, you know, people in the crowd, they're, they're crying, there's chants of Misawa. As Misawa slipped away, EMTs arrived to work on him. They rushed him to Hiroshima University Hospital. But by 10.10 p.m., Mitsuharu Misawa had died at the age of 46. Kind of an unfortunate victim in all of this was Saito, who just did a wrestling move. Like, he didn't, like, lay it in. He didn't botch it. He wasn't, like, out of control. You know, it was just, like, Misawa's time to go. But, like, man, he got him and his family got death threats. He obviously felt guilty as fuck, and he was, like at one point suicidal like i feel so bad for him like just it wasn't his fault well even like bison smith who was in the match he was a harley race guy he's a foreign in this lane he's wrestling the legend misawa and like this happens and i think he i think bison smith was on a cult art of wrestling podcast and talked about it like how tough and weird that was if, if i'm not mistaken but yeah like bison smith was in that match and then i always heard that like bison kind of took it kind of hard too well like anybody would like if you're in a match and somebody dies like right in front of you it's it's not what you expect when you go out there yeah this is incredibly sad and it's it sucks that people try to place blame when it's such a a chance happening. Not really a chance happening. I mean, it's it's Masala's body breaking down over years and years and years and years of abuse and carrying multiple companies on his back and not taking any time off. But he went out in the ring, and I don't want to put words in the man's mouth, but I, I would assume as much as he loved professional wrestling, I don't think that's the worst way he would have wanted to go. There's any silver lining to it. Final thoughts on Misawa. Mitsuhara Misawa was an extremely talented wrestler. You can look up any myriad of matches on YouTube. You have no excuse. It's all there completely free. Hours upon hours upon hours of him carrying all Japan, him having five, six star matches with nearly everybody he stepped in the ring with. You can go back. You can check it all out. Mitsuharu Misawa had a great influence not only on the legacy of Japanese professional wrestling, but also American professional wrestling. You have guys that were going over there that are now the top of the wrestling mountain, Brian Danielson, uh, Samoa Joe, a whole bunch of other guys that were in Ring of Honor at that time on the indies in, in the 
you know, the O3s to O9s. Had an incredible influence. He was an amazingly talented wrestler. And I think it's awesome how he bet on himself, honestly. He said, I am confident, I'm so confident in myself as a professional wrestler and my ability to deliver a great product and great stories to fans. I'm going to bet on myself. I'm going to go out and make my own promotion. And he did. And it's been a success. And he passed away too young, but we still have pro wrestling Noah and various other parts of his legacy that we can still enjoy. Yeah. And to, to add on to that, of uh, like betting on himself and having confidence, uh, I don't think anywhere in your research, Nick, you found uh, maybe a comment where they're like, oh, Masao was super cocky. God, he was so arrogant. Like, yeah. man, I always want to be a center of attention. And as I laid out for you, the reason he was putting the belt on him or the championship was not because he was selfish. It's because he was being selfless. He loved professional wrestling. And as Tyler said, like, probably I mean, what what better way to go but of course we romanticize that as wrestlers it's like ah if i'm gonna go anywhere i want to go in the ring but i mean ultimately like do you want to be able to get out of wrestling and look back at your catalog and feel a sense of pride and ownership and like i did that and be proud of your accomplishments as a wrestler a lot of guys don't do that, and and as large and as diverse and and as important as Masawa's catalog is, he didn't get that opportunity to be able to step away and look at his accomplishments and what he's done. And uh, I feel very sad that he never got that opportunity because he definitely deserved it as much as he poured into everything. I think there's kind of like a beautiful sort of poetic thing to a guy who became a god in the ring, leaving us in one. And not just any ring. It was his. It was his company. It was his ring. It had his green on the apron. The way he led, he was never going to ask anyone to do anything he wouldn't do first. And honestly, he wouldn't do better. But in the end, I mean, it is a tragedy because even 10 years before this, Masawa could have stepped away and been a Japanese wrestling epic like not even a legend like a fucking like paul bunyan or something and he could still be guiding the industry today or just at the very least sitting on his couch and watching tv but he felt obligated financially to carry the company to give fans the best he could as a booker a president a worker and to do that he had to risk his life every single time he stepped between the ropes and i think this is all like a hard lesson about what pro wrestlers do to their bodies. Like a lot of them can be rewarded with, you know, status or money or, or fame, but only like the top 1% are paid like a, like an NFL player who takes a beating, but their career is an average of what, like four years. If you're like an all pro, maybe you hit double digits or like a punter that doesn't get hit every play. Masawa was just warming up 10 years in. And I think as fans, we get very numb to how difficult everything is the ring is in the ring because we see people do it so effortlessly all the time. But the pain and the sheer like brutality of wrestling is completely lost on us because we don't experience. We know they're working together and we know it's not real. But everything hurts. Like running the ropes hurts. Like go lunge yourself into three still cables and see how it feels. Getting hit in the safe spots hurts. And any given move, any routine spot, like a wrestler can die. 
because humans shouldn't do this. Like the perfect amount to get suplexed in your entire life is zero. And I don't think we appreciate that enough until something like a Masawa happens. I think we forget that these are actual human people. And yeah, the the top are rewarded with money or fame. Or if you're Masawa, maybe you'll be remembered forever. But don't let performer sacrifices and don't let Masawa sacrifice be lost on you. All right. That is uh, Masawa's 10 Bell Pod. Thank you for listening. Couple Patreon things, real quick. I updated that master list of bonus episodes and pinned it to the top of the Patreon. So, those of you in the bonus content tier, so you don't have to go searching for them. I think there's now over 30 things on the bonus content list. There's the drunk wrestling, there's matches from Jake, there's stand up from Jake. And those drunk wrestlings have been like so fun to edit. So, definitely check those out. I've also been dropping new episodes on the Patreon the second I'm done with them. So the patrons are getting the next week's show 12 plus hours before everyone else. So just a heads up on all that. But uh, Jake, Tyler, you got anything? Yes, thank you to all the fans who contribute to our Patreon. Make sure you leave reviews. Reviews are very important on whatever platform you choose to listen to us. Please leave a review. It helps other show tremendously. Yeah, thank you guys in any way that you support, whether that's even just listening to the podcast, really appreciate it. Uh, If you could take the time, leave a five-star review if you feel like it warrants it. Six stars if we were in Japan. Other than that, I just want to say thank you guys. And if you do have any suggestions of other things that you'd want to see on the bonus content on Patreon or things you want to see us do off Patreon, feel free to drop a comment somewhere. I'm sure someone will see it most likely, Nick. We will see you next week for the main events. Giant Baba implies the existence of a regular-sized Baba. And where is this smaller Baba? What is he hiding?